Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. This is Eleanor Rangers, one of your co-hosts. This is part three of our discussion with Susan Ipjul about what the future may hold for healthcare in space. In this podcast, my co-host Tom Hill and myself have some wide-ranging questions for Susan to wrap up our interview with her. How did you become attracted to this novel area uh, and in terms of space settlement? I'm just curious about what led you to that to start doing this. So, you know, I actually watched uh, Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon uh, when I was very young, uh, around the age of uh, nine. And um, I, I was so, I mean, it sounds very corny because a lot of people of my, of my age group have probably say that's kind of their, you know, what sort of um, uh, inspired them, right, and motivated them. So when I saw um, Neil Armstrong set on the moon, I was so inspired. I was so excited. I was, um, and I remember saying to myself, Oh my gosh, you know, we are going to actually have humans live on another planet in the next 20 years or so. Right. Remember this was in the sixties. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then, then with the uh, science fiction, you know, with, um, Isaac Asimov, uh, uh, and also with Star Trek, you know, in the sixties original coming out very close to, you know, that moon landing. And then of course, David Bowie in the, in our arts and culture, you know, with, with space oddity and all this. I think that really inspired me. I think at the time I, I, no, it wasn't about space exploration. It was what excited me, uh, during my life journey was to evolve humanity to the next evolutionary phase to improve the quality of life on earth. So that really was the trigger really that uh, sort of like inspired me to go into fields, into, uh, into learning areas where um, whatever it was that I was in embarked on doing at the time, uh, the, the bottom line was, did it uh, inspire, could it inspire others? And did it help evolve us as, as a human species, right, here on Earth? And did it improve life on Earth? So when I went into to music, that was the creative side. Really, fundamentally, it was using the music and the lyrics to be able to inspire others, to move others with, with that. Then I went into, you know, medicine. And then that was because I wanted to learn the skill set to be able to improve life for others, right, quality of life for others in, in the way that I could. And then, of course, with that transitioning into into astronautics and into, and into space exploration and the future of, I can imagine, you know, human settlement. However, with that said, you know, I am very, very, um, and I would emphasize this, I do not want to, you know, seed a, a vision that replicates disastrously what we've done on Earth. So with, 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 with the title Mars Without Borders, the whole idea without borders is literally how I see and how I hope that the the future of of humanity settling on an off world planet is that it is the human race without borders, both from a literal sense and in a philosophical sense. So in terms of that borders, you know, physical borders, geographic borders, 
and and psychological borders and religious borders and you know financial you know borders and all these borders that we've implemented here on earth that's caused a lot of our our problems of life on earth and also the destruction of our quality of life on earth that is something i would not want to see so where am i going with this why am i emphasizing this so that is why I'm very interested, or the teams that I'm working with, it's very interested at looking at human factors and astral wellness. But basically, it's really coming from my experience with building the clinic here, you know, an integrative wellness clinic, is to look at the human psyche, looking at the spiritual mind and body of, of, of the individual and, and helping them not only maintaining that optimum health and wellness and well-being, but also for them to enhance it using the technologies that is now there available and will be available and coming on board. And so if we can imp implement that into tr in the training of these individuals through these analog simulations, these astronaut analog simulations, then we can literally see a potential to find the right individuals to form these future astronauts to go into these um, missions and settle on the moon or Mars. That's how I really am very interested. And I do not want to just bring individuals just to go there and then just replicate what we've done so disastrously on Earth. So, so with Mars without borders or moon without borders or, or space without borders, it's literally, I think, that's the important I think part of what we, that should be an important part of the vision mm -hmm. as we move forward. It's actually kind of refreshing to hear your philosophy. It, it actually is a very positive one. And uh, I think that's, that's something that's empowering it, uh, particularly for the younger generation that may be uh, aspiring to get involved in this area. Let me ask you one uh, mm -hmm. final question, and I'm going to open it up to Tom and Emily if they mm -hmm. have additional questions. If you're a betting person, and I get the sense that you're, uh, a bit of a risk taker from our conversation here. Who do you think is going to be the first to Mars? NASA or Musk or Russia or China or someone else that we haven't thought of? Um, well, first of all, I'm going to disclose my disclose that I am not a gambler and I do not take risks without really looking at the risks. So, yes, on one side, I am a risk taker. But on the other side of the coin, I am a very, very careful risk taker. I really do my due diligence of, you know, what type of risk that I want to go and embark on or involve in. And so I'm, I am not a gambler uh, on any, you know, level at all. So with answering that question, I don't see that uh, to be able to see a humanity or this vision of humanity, you know, one day becoming a multi-planetary species. It's not just one entity or one individual or one group. It really is a global community working together, both from the private government and the commercial sector. And, and that's how I see it. Because if we don't, because really when, when you talk about the human species, right, we are one and we originate from the same source. And so because, and it's back to what I just previously said, because we've implemented all these these borders, that it's very hard for us to integrate. But I don't see us actually fully manifesting this vision if we do not work together as one, as the human species, and also integrating our spaceship Earth, because spaceship Earth is not a separate 
entity on his own. It is part of the whole cosmos. And so until the day that we can all acknowledge that and see that, I don't think that we would, it would be a very hard challenge for us to, to, to manifest this, this vision that I just, you know, explained to you at that higher level, right? Because if we, if we just continue as we move forward, as we've done for centuries here, as we, as a human species, our evolution, we're just going to see the whole destruction of our, of space. Basically, we'll have wars in space. Literally, the whole you know Hollywood movie of Star of Star Wars. That that is what's going to happen. And we, I do not endorse that, and I do not want to see that happen. Right? Because that is totally the whole, really, the reverse, the opposite of what we're trying to what uh, I, I imagine the future to be. That would be horrific. And so that question that you asked me is, no, it's not one individual, it's not one company, it's not one entity, it's a global force. It's one of, of us working together. I don't know if we can unify. Maybe it's too late. I always have the silver lining and I always have a hope. Um, that's why I keep going. Being part of, and this is a little bit about my history, Part of my father, you know, who was my biggest mentor, inspirator of my life, and he was the first and only Chinese to be accepted into the very elite British force of the Special Air Service, which is the SAS, and they are the the grandfather of all special forces. They started special forces back in the in the forties during the World War Two with under General Wingate. And, and their motto, and I was, I was born there in the headquarters of SES in Hereford in England, is the, the motto is who dares wins and never give up. And that's what I always apply my life journey to. Anything I do is I never give up and, and I dare to win. And that's what I try to impart to others. And so, yes, that's, that's my answer. <laughs> Thank you so much. I open it up to Emily and Tom if they have any additional questions. All right. Yeah, I have a I have a couple questions. I understand you're involved with Astronauts for Hire. Could you give us a quick background on what they do and how you see their role? Well, Astronauts for Hire. Yes, I know um, them from from many years back. Um, being a member and uh, how and I know the founders, uh, Bill Shiro and and the and the others. Um, but now they've actually changed their name. Oh, yeah, the Associated Space Flight Professionals. So that's what they're called now, and that was a recent change. And so I think their mission is kind of uh, slightly changed in terms of, um, you know, they really want to engage people who are interested in space flight, human space flight, and working with individuals in both academia and the general public, citizen scientists, as you could call, you know, who are interested in, in um, I guess, uh, innovating ideas for for uh, probably zero gravity, right? Um, uh, zero G, sorry, parabolic flight or, or low Earth orbit on the ISS. So they're really much more of a sort of um, an educational platform right now. And uh, I would, and I think Dr. Michael Gallagher now is the CEO, president of of ASP. And I think what they're doing is fantastic. And we're going to be collaborating with them because this is a very small community, really. Everybody really knows everyone. So I really love what they're doing. And uh, I think, you know, we're on this. We're very synergistic in our vision and our mission. Cool. And then uh, another area that I tend to focus on as a technology guy that should solve a lot of your problems in um, 
gravity and things along those lines is the idea of artificial gravity, the spin gravity, using your discarded upper stage on your way to your mission. You spin up and generate some gravity. Obviously, it's not actual gravity. It's it's a simulation of gravity. Have you dealt at all with uh, the effects that would have on anything? We're very interested. If anybody has innovative ideas into simulating micro G, um, that would be really fantastic. We actually have a, a part of our simulation. We allow the crew to go into a neutral buoyancy training simulation in the swimming pool that we have in our facility, and they actually wear VR goggles. Uh, waterproof uh, underwater VR headsets, and we're going to put another layer on to that at a later date into in terms of AR, augmented reality, so then they're able to manipulate. But they're able to do, at least have the experience or, or the sensation of being in, in, in micro-G or low-Earth orbit, right? So have that because water is an analog of space. And so, you know, going into a full simulation in, with the VR goggles, but in terms of literally having a micro G technology uh, right now, except for the, I think, uh, the space camp there in Alabama, they they have this device where you wear this, uh, I, I think, your know, harness, and that allows you to, like, the gravity on the moon to get that sensation, but it's really very crude. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't phrase the question properly. I'm talking about on a space mission where instead of floating in microgravity, you spin the spacecraft and generate artificial gravity for your for your crew. There's obviously issues with how fast you'd have to spin and how long your moment arm would have to be. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've, so you know, I've been on the centrifuge arm, so I know that's been. Uh, there's a lot of issues with that. You know, either you want the spin, you want to provide that, but then the 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 design of the spacecraft is just ridiculously too large. It's not going to happen uh or you're going to spin too fast and you're going to get all the you know um issues of of that so um i don't think that would unless the technology uh you know can come online at some future date i don't think artificial gravity with the spinning would really work at this point in time well yeah we need to demonstrate it we did it in the 60s but we didn't do it quite uh, thoroughly there's a uh, using a tether with a counterweight on the opposite side Uh, Then one other question. Do you have any insight? Uh, Obviously, we know that microgravity is good and one grav. I'm sorry, microgravity is bad. One gravity is good. Do you have any theory on the line, whether it's a straight line from bad to good or if like a tenth of a G would combat much of the problem? I can't answer that technically, but what I can answer is what's being currently developed to be able to address some of the micro G effect, negative effects on the body. So, for example, you know, coming out of MIT, Adada Newman and her team have developed the countermeasure skin suit, and right now they're able to incorporate, and they're designing the spacesuit to incorporate miniature gyroscopes, right? So, you know, and vibration that uh, allow at least the, the individuals wearing that to be able to reduce the, the, the effects of, you know, muscle atrophy and, and bone loss. And so, so that, that's an interesting possible countermeasure that could be able to address the issues of micro-G. I, I just think that uh, no matter what the, the, either the increase or the decrease of that one G of humans in, in that environment, 
it, at some point in time, whether it's going to be immediate, like in microgravity on the ISS, right, studies have shown that probably within the next, within 48 hours, the effects have started already, the negative effects. You know, we're so evolved, evolved to live under 1G, uh, very difficult. Now, I'm going to answer that question because I always like to think out of the box, um, where we're able to find a way using, like I said, the genetic, you know, biomimicry or using the genetic tools to be able to change our DNA, to change our, our molecular construction, right, to, to be able to uh, adapt quicker to living under, under these uh, different G environments. Maybe that can happen, uh, you know, but not in, within the next sort of 10, 15 years. Those are, those are just how I can imagine it, those, uh, you know, directions that we can move forward to be able to uh, address some of these issues. I'd rather be on Mars. It's closer to 1G. Well, thank you. This has really been exciting to think about all these future possibilities and to realize that there are people like yourself that are, striving to pave the way for this. So we really appreciate your time. I'm sure our audience is going to appreciate uh, listening to this as well. Well, thank you so much, um, everyone, for having me. And it was really fun. And, and I hope that the listeners, um, for me, it's about, you know, inspiring you and to motivate you to be actionable in, in your life. That's really what it is. And to, and to share your knowledge and skills in, and uh, be collaborative. And that's really what, what really excites me about this whole, <laughs> this whole adventure. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed part three of our interview with Susan Ipjul. Make sure to listen to our next podcast where Emily, Tom, and I debrief on season one. On behalf of my co-hosts, Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.